You've tuned in to Chaos to the Fly, a podcast for fans of the darkness and the supernatural by Greg Newbigin. If you'd like to reach out to provide feedback or say hello, send an email to info at chaostothefly.com or if you'd like to share an experience, send the details to stories at chaostothefly.com and it might be included on future episodes. Now, let's get down to business, shall we? G'day everyone and welcome to episode 5 of Chaos to the Fly. It is cold, grey and rainy here in Melbourne, which is absolutely perfect for listening to some horror contents. So I hope today's content lives up to it. If you missed last week's episode, episode 4, I covered Malok, an ancient demon. There was a scary ghost story from a person still living in that home. And I reviewed the Spanish-language movie The Platform, which I watched on Netflix. Great movie. If you have been thinking about watching it, watch it. It's really worth your time. Anyway, probably about time we crack on in to this week's episode. Uh, There were some shorter ones this week, but I decided just to stick with one of each. Uh, We'll see how that goes. Anyway, I'll see you around at the end of the episode. Skinwalkers. If I mentioned Skinwalker Ranch to many of my friends, they'd laugh at me and tell me I probably meant Skywalker Ranch. But no, I didn't. I guess that just says a lot about my friends. Anyway, before I get to the ranch in question, I do need to get to the real topic at hand here. Skinwalkers. The name itself is pretty frightening. The idea of skinwalkers originally came from the Navajo, a southwestern tribe of Native American people. Their word for them is, and I will absolutely destroy the pronunciation of this so please pardon, Yi Nagloshi, which apparently translates as he who walks on all fours, or something like that. It's used to refer not to a demon or a monster, but then again it depends on your definition of the word monster, but to a witch, one of the bad kind. However, Navajo culture demands that its people do not discuss these ideas with those outside of their culture. So not a great deal is known, or at least it wasn't for a while. In Navajo culture, each tribe will have its healer or medicine man, but these individuals are never considered a witch, which is are, by Navajo definition, evil. That said, healers in Navajo culture will learn both good and evil magic, but those that are not able to control their evil desires eventually end up choosing the evil path, and that's when they become a witch. When it comes to skinwalkers specifically, I guess the closest idea from Western culture is that of a shapeshifter or a werewolf. And yes, that means that skinwalkers can change their form to that of an animal, at will. It's understood that the most common animal that these witches will transform into is the coyote, as well as wolves, crows, and owls, but it's also believed that skinwalkers can possess people and animals just by looking them in the eyes. Some believe they can also steal the faces of other people, appearing as that person until they change again. They can also run both incredibly fast and for incredibly long distances, 
some say over 200 miles in a single night, which is a lot. There are several other beliefs as well, but mentions of them are few and far between, so I'll leave them out of this recounting. Being related to Native American people, sightings are understandably located near Native reservations. But more colloquially, other regions also refer to similar encounters as a rake, which many believe is simply another name for a skinwalker. Of course, myths and legends such as these have existed throughout time, and many cultures include stories of some kind of shapeshifter. So what makes skinwalkers so special now? I guess this brings us back to the story of Skinwalker Ranch. Skinwalker Ranch is an interesting place. Located in the state of Utah, within a location that has a history of UFO and paranormal activity, its fame began in the mid-90s with stories of the Sherman family, who were living there at the time, and their numerous experiences. Terry Sherman was so confronted by what he'd experienced that he uprooted his family and moved away within 18 months of purchasing the property. This was, of course, before the ranch was given its name, and the Shermans told tales of crop circles, cattle mutilation, and UFO sightings. As such, the ranch was snapped up by UFO enthusiast Robert Bigelow. Since that time, the ranch has changed hands several times, but it has always remained the centre of experimentation and round-the-clock surveillance, with no parties as yet able to corroborate the claims of the Shermans. So where did the ranch get its name? Well, the Shermans not only spoke of UFO encounters, but also about the appearance of large animals, mostly wolves. Others later claimed to have also seen similar creatures, some humanoid, some not, which seemed to support the argument that something untoward was certainly happening on the ranch. Further, these creatures were not only large in size, but were seemingly uninjured after being shot at close range with a rifle. Given these creatures became a relatively common sighting near the ranch, people began to refer to it as Skinwalker Ranch, and the name has stuck ever since. In fact, the current owners have even sought to trademark the name. That said, the ranch is not actually located in a traditionally Navajo region. While there are plenty of other stories in the region, this effectively describes the ranch. Currently, the ranch has been closed off to the public, now surrounded by barbed wire fencing and video surveillance. To date, nothing has been discovered on the site. But that hasn't stopped people from leveraging the name. There have been a couple of recent movies documenting both the Skinwalker lore and the story of the ranch itself, as well as the ranch being featured in several episodes of popular TV shows, including Ancient Aliens, for those that enjoy that particular piece of modern television. In fact, there's a new series recently released on the History Network, titled The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. This series contains footage and interviews with a number of scientists conducting research on the site. I might have to watch that one. While nothing has been officially discovered there, I find the massive number of sightings there to be quite interesting. This week's ghost story is another haunted house. This one was submitted to me by Sheila from Jacksonville via Facebook Messenger, of all things. When first approached by Sheila via a question post on a Facebook group, 
my interest was piqued with only a few words. I grew up in a haunted house. This is Sheila's story. At age 10, when she was in fourth grade, Sheila and her family moved to a new home in Anniston, Alabama. At first, the house seemed nice, not unlike any other somewhat average two-story home. It had an attic and enough room for a young family as well as several growing children, including Sheila and her twin, a younger sister, and their brother. The previous owners had apparently moved on due to relationship difficulties, yet Sheila noted that thankfully they were able to resolve these at a later date, and to her knowledge, they were still together all these years later. Still, given what happened during the time that Sheila and her family spent in the home, there was a sense that perhaps the strain on the relationship may have had some outside influences. Initially, the house felt like any other home that Sheila had lived in before. For the first few years at least, life carried on without incident. But it wasn't an easy time for her parents. They struggled to keep gainful employment for the duration, which was really uncharacteristic of them prior or since. However, by the time Sheila had reached 17 years of age, her younger sister, who was herself then aged 15, had begun to become interested in some more sinister activities, and things took a turn for the worse. Led by a desire to contact a much-loved boyfriend who'd recently passed away much too soon, Sheila's sister had turned to the occult. Over time, she built her knowledge and understanding of witchcraft through books she'd found at a local libraries and local bookstores books she would eventually use to try to pierce the veil, to try to contact her deceased boyfriend. Sheila is not exactly sure if her sister ever did manage to reach him, but she would often hear voices coming from her sister's room at night, followed by her sister's mirthful laughter, yet she was quite aware that her sister was in her bedroom alone. Sadly, and as one would expect given the circumstances, the loss of the boyfriend was a difficult time for her sister. When it reached its zenith, she'd even carved his name into her skin. It was the strain of this loss that led her, Sheila believes, to also try to contact demons. And that's when the real problems began, and soon after, the house began to feel eerie. Given the massive personality change that afflicted her sister at the time, Sheila also believes that by contacting the demons, her younger sister was possibly also possessed by them. Occasionally, she'd also hear these spirits calling her sister's name from her bedroom, something which gave her nightmares for years afterward. Sheila also began to experience sleep paralysis, which was something she'd only ever experienced during this period of her life. This would occur most nights, generally accompanied by dreams of spirits that were trapped within the walls of the house screaming and banging on the plaster, Sheila herself unable to move, only to observe in mute horror. In addition to these spirit voices and the banging on the walls heard at night, Sheila later heard a man's voice coming from her brother's room one day, a deep, booming voice that was unlike any of the males in her family, although she couldn't quite make out what it was saying. The attic, which had never been a source of concern, was at the time often full of banging noises as well. In fact, it seemed to be constantly noisy up there. Upon entering, though, everything became silent and still. But it wasn't only Sheila that had strange experiences during this time. 
her twin would also hear strange voices and noises within the house, as would her brother. On one occasion, her mother and younger sister watched on helplessly as a rocking chair rocked slowly back and forth, entirely on its own. Her mother would often become distraught as a result of all this, occasionally locking herself in the bedroom in the hope that she'd not be disturbed. However, on more than one occasion, she mentioned that she'd noticed the doorknob would sometimes turn on its own, as if whatever forces had been released within the home struggled to open the door. Luckily, though, the door always held firm. On yet another occasion, while her mother was talking on the phone with Sheila's grandmother, she received an incoming call, and was startled to note that the phone recorded it as coming from the house itself. Sheila never understood how they could receive a call from their own number while the line was being used. She always felt that this was somehow related to the other strange occurrences. Thankfully, although the experience was frightening for a couple of years, nobody was physically harmed by any of the incidents, and eventually Sheila and her family moved elsewhere. That said, Sheila and her twin continued to suffer nightmares for several years after leaving the house, but the rest of the strange occurrences did stop immediately after the family moved out. Better still, Sheila's younger sister, who clearly had a difficult few years at the time, is now doing very well. The family was able to put the experiences behind them, although none are willing to return to the home that they are convinced is still cursed. This week's review is of the Netflix series Lock and Key, season one of which was released earlier this year. I guess this is mainly a review of season one of the recently released Netflix series and not so much of the comic book series that it's based on. The reason for this is that they're actually quite different, although many of the story beats that play out in the comic are repeated in the TV series. But the TV series also forges some new paths on its own. And I've got a feeling they're going to end very differently. Enough said on that front. The other issue is I haven't read all of the Lock and Key comics, so can't really comment on something I haven't finished. <laughs> anyway, the series starts as the Lock family moves back into the old family home, which is called the Key House. They do this as a result of the death of the patriarch, Rendell Locke, a school counsellor that was shot and killed by a disturbed student. The family's mother chooses to move back to the old family home in order to try to start fresh and be close to where her husband had grown up. The story is somewhat vast and convoluted, but the premise is simple. There are magical keys within the house that allow the kids and only the kids to do some crazy things. Rendell and his friends had also known about the keys, and something happened in the past that they all wanted to forget, including friends that passed under suspicious circumstances. A kind of ghost of the past looks to escape back into the real world, and it wreaks havoc among the lives of the Locke family children in both fantastical and somewhat horrific ways. I don't want to spend too much more time on the plot, in some ways, I feel like I've given away too much already, although I have tried to be deliberately subtle or vague. But the ten episodes of season one cover a hell of a lot of ground, 
also leaving itself open to a second season, which I am looking forward to. The series is perhaps not as scary as I would have liked it to be, and it does focus a little too much on the school lives of the children, but perhaps that's nitpicking. After all, it is somewhat necessary for character building. Still, it could have lent itself very well to a more horrific feel, but the creators opted for a more fantastic, almost Disney-like atmosphere. It is dark at times, but not quite as dark as I would have liked it, and less dark than the comic, to be clear. If you want more information on the keys and what they do, for example, one of the keys allows the children to turn into ghosts and fly around as a spirit. Another one allows them to enter their own mind in a very literal way. It's really got to be seen to be understood. <laughs> yes, it does sound more like a Harry Potter than a Hellraiser or something like that, and it's kind of stretching it to call Lock and Key a horror, but in many ways it really is a horror. It has horrific themes, I guess is what you is the best way to say it. So I would recommend checking it out. It's a great season of television. Not an absolute must-watch series, but I definitely recommend checking it out if this is your kind of thing. Alrighty, that wraps things up for today's horror content, but let's take a look at why I chose this stuff. Skinwalkers... I don't even know where I heard the term skinwalker. I don't know whether it was on another podcast or a TV show or YouTube or what it may have been, but I have no idea. Anyway, whenever I heard it, it has stuck in my mind as being a kind of cool concept. And I did end up going down the rabbit hole when it comes to YouTube. And uh, yeah, there's quite a few videos on it. There's some that seem more realistic than others. Some are a bit crappy. Some are obviously faked. But then again, there's plenty of documentary style uh, videos on YouTube as well about skinwalkers. And I just, really, I just like the sound of the name, Skinwalker. It sends a chill down my spine. Whether or not it's a real thing is, you know, up to the eye of the beholder because there's no proof of it. But it may well be something. Who knows? I don't. The ghost story was actually the very first ghost story that I received for this show. Way back in February, I think it was, I put a call out on a podcast group for people who make podcasts, just saying, hey, I've got this idea. If anyone's got an experience with pod with podcasts, if anyone's got an experience with something that they can't explain, reach out to me and let you know your story. Let me know your story. And yes, this was the first person to have reached out to me. Uh, I asked a bunch of questions over Facebook Messenger, and then I turned it into today's story. So that was mostly all my writing based on experiences that I was told in, you know, just a couple of sentences. So I did ask a lot of questions that fleshed out the story, so it's none of it's really made up. Uh, it's just, yeah. 
it is what it is. But I'm quite proud of that one. I just wish it was a little bit longer, but it's a great story. Uh, scary stuff. And a warning to you out there. Don't mess with things you don't understand. Spooky stuff. Alrighty, and lastly, Lock and Key. Lock and Key is a comic that I've been interested in for a couple of years. I read a few, but I didn't end up getting through all of it. A good friend of mine, actually the very person who does the intro and outro for the show, Mr. Mr. Yarn, is a big fan of Lock and Key. So we were both looking forward to when the show was released. And again, I like to cover things that are relatively new on the show, and that is pretty damn new and also pretty damn worthwhile. So I definitely recommend you check it out. And if you are into comic books, check out the comics as well. It's very similar, but it does sort of go into things a little bit deeper and darker. Anyway, today's topic is music. Music that I like. Um, I like a lot of things, to be honest. I guess I've gone through lots of different phases where I listen to The Doors and The Kinks and, you know, lots of sort of classic 60s and 70s music. Uh, Pink Floyd, my brother, uh, got me onto Pink Floyd at a very young age. I wasn't allowed to not like them. Uh, and that sort of led me down the path of eventually getting interested in heavy metal. Now, my brother was a big fan of heavy metal throughout the 80s and still is. But he liked 80s, you know, uh, new wave of British heavy metal style heavy metal, which is Iron Maiden, um, that kind of stuff. And I could never get into it. It was just, it was never my thing. And even now, I still, I listen to extreme metal, so the real hardcore stuff. Even now, I love the hardcore stuff, but I just can't appreciate traditional heavy metal as much as I kind of wish I could, because that is the history and it's the roots of, of uh, all heavy metal. So these days I like to listen mostly to doom metal, uh, black or death doom, uh, black metal, death metal to a, to a degree, because I enjoy it. Yes, it also has very close relations with horror. So, you know, you may have heard of a band called Cannibal Corpse, who has a very, very famous track called Hammer Smashed Face. Now, yes, gross. <laughs> And kind of aggressive and weird and all that kind of stuff. But if you look into it, the reason that the band makes these music about these gory, gross, horrific themes is they see it as storytelling through music. So if you can have horror movies, horror books, horror video games, all that kind of thing, why can't you have horrific music? So that is where Cannibal Corpse sits. I'm not a big fan of Cannibal Corpse myself, but when I heard that, I thought, you know what, I understand that, I respect that, and it has its own place. Now, of course, other music is aggressive for aggressive sake, so I'm not saying that's the same, that's it about everything, but that's um, sort of where I like to come from. Some of it is in regards to evoking emotions and feelings within myself some some of it is even dealing with issues of loss and um you know life day-to-day -day life anyway i also as i grew up over the years listened to a lot of electronic music i listened to 
a lot of classical music. I went through a phase where all I listened to was classical and I bought CD upon CD upon CD of different versions or different people playing a different orchestra. So I, I am to a degree somewhat eclectic, although I wouldn't call myself an eclectic, eclectic music fan. I think that term is overused a little bit. I think I appreciate lots of different styles of music, but I really am a, a metal head at heart. Anyway, that's me. Now my secret about uh, this week is going to be about music. Why not? I tend to tie my uh, little backstory into whatever my topic is that I choose for the week. This week it is about music and growing up my brother force-fed me lots of heavy metal, Pink Floyd, lots of different music throughout the years. But I never actually got into music myself at all until I was about 15 years of age, 15 or 16, which may be late for some people. I know a lot of people got into music a lot earlier. I mean, a lot of musicians picked up a guitar at four years of age and never put it down. My brother, again, played a lot of guitar as I was growing up. He even tried to teach me, but, you know, I've got two left hands when it comes to playing uh, musical instruments. So I never got into music until I was about 15, and that happened kind of accidentally. I, I might have even been older. I can't remember. I think I was, I think what it was, was there was a teacher who used to ask us to bring music, and he would play music uh, on a Friday afternoon. At the end of the day, everyone gets to choose a different song, and we'd listen to different stuff that people like. And I was nervous that he was going to come to me and I didn't know what I liked. I didn't have any favorite bands. I didn't have anything. So uh, I talked to a couple of friends and I remember one of the first things I was introduced to was um, Machine Head's Davidian, Let Freedom Ring with the Shotgun Blast. Uh, so <laughs> that was the song I believe I chose, even though I hadn't really even heard it at the time. Then I started listening to Guns N' Roses, Nine Inch Nails, uh, Marilyn Manson, of all things. Lots of different things uh, started to come into my um, sphere of, of interest, and away we went. And now, you know, I'm not going to say oh, I'm a big fan of music, because I think everyone's a big fan of music in reality. But yeah, it, it's interesting to me that I didn't really care about music until suddenly when I was 15, when it seemed like it was going to impact me socially. And then all of a sudden I discovered why everyone liked music, I guess. The first CD that I ever bought is a little more embarrassing. Maybe. Depends. It was The Offspring's Smash. Yep, you gotta keep them separated. I don't think I've even got that CD anymore, even, even though it was the first one I ever bought. The first record vinyl I ever bought was actually a Jimi Hendrix record. I've still got that. I can't remember where it is. Something about puppets. Yeah. That's all I can think of right now off the top of my head. But that's me. I guess my secret shame is that the first CD I bought was The Offspring. <laughs> not that The Offspring's bad. Plenty of people like them. It's just not my thing. It's a little bit too poppy punk for me these days, although they did have a couple of good albums, I'll give them that. Anyway, 
That brings me to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please continue to spread the word. I do see the numbers growing slowly, which I really appreciate. And that means there's people out there spreading and sharing. So appreciate that. Of course, if you are a fan of the show, please do head on over to iTunes or wherever you like and share a review. So let me read one out now. Okay, this is the last of the reviews that I've got in my backlog. This one comes from Rathok. Thank you to Rathok for supporting me here. His title is Chill Warning Ahead, and he's given it five stars, so I appreciate that. This has jumped to one of my must-listen-to shows for the day it comes out. Really enjoy the lore presented and the stories, both in their tale and how how they're told, gives me chills. Make sure you can let the podcast pull your focus, because it will likely have you waiting for what happens next. So, very, very kind words. Appreciate that. Uh, And if you have been enjoying the show, please head on over to wherever the hell you leave podcast reviews and leave a review for Chaos to the Fly so other people can get on into it and become interested. And again, give me some feedback if there's something you do or do not like about the show. Please let me know. I'm not going to bite. It's all in the interest of making a better show for you, the listener. Anyway, smash that subscribe button, click like, click the little bell icon. I'm pretending it's a YouTube video in case you didn't realize. Anyway, bad jokes, dad jokes. I am a dad, so it's all right. I'll see you next week for episode six. Still not sure what's going to be in there, but it's going to be a good one, I promise. Bye. Chaos to the Fly might mostly be my little project. But it couldn't be what it is without the help of some key individuals and resources. So I'd like to thank the following. Thanks to Simon Exley for his brilliant music making skills, providing all music used in the show. You can look for his work at inexilerecords.bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Mr. Mr. Yarn for his glorious voice work, which you can hear in the intro and outro. You can find him at disco underscore box on Twitter. And last but not least, thank you to Simon Sherry, who provided the excellent artwork for the show, including our spooky mascot. Follow Simon at Simon Sherry on Twitter. Before I go, however, I should mention that the sound effects were obtained from Zapsplat.com. And if you're looking for me, you can find me at Mad Capsules on Twitter. Thanks for listening to another episode of Chaos to the Fly. It would really help if you could leave us a review on iTunes or simply share the podcast with others you feel may be interested. To keep the spooky conversation going, follow us at Chaos to the Fly on Twitter and Facebook. Back to work, flies. <laughs>